introduction. Praise the Lord. For any of you that I did terrorize, you can talk to Nat and Randy Dodson. They were victims. Um, I do love you, UBC family. It's a distinct privilege to get to bring the word to you, particularly on this occasion as I think about transitioning off staff. Um, it really is sweet to get to stand up here uh, one more time in a staff capacity and to bring God's word before you. I'm also uh, personally grateful, Brad, that this time has been more extended. My lovely wife just walked in, just arrived here from Dallas, so I'm grateful for that and that uh, she gets to be here as well. So um, I'm excited to spend just these next few moments before we head over the pot, to the potluck together and to spend some time in this wonderful passage from Acts 2 as we seek to marvel at God's power to break hearts of stone through the spirit-empowered gospel proclamation. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but that's what I want us to get from tonight. One thing, I want, to, I want us to marvel at God's power to break hearts of stone through spirit-empowered gospel proclamation. So let's begin with that image, the image of a rock. Have you ever tried to break a rock before? When I was a kid, I was a terror, and I was partly a terror because I was all boy. And one of the things I liked to do when I was a boy was to pick up rocks and throw them at things. That got me in trouble on a number of occasions, but one particular game I would often like to play is, can I find a rock that I can actually break? And so I would pick these rocks up that I would find on the ground, and I would try to smash them as hard as I could into the ground. Can you guess what happened? It bounced back. It didn't break. If anything, it bounced back and hit me and did more damage to me than it did to the rock. That's how rocks work. I'm not talking about clay that's hardened or different limestone, but solid core rock. It's hard, right? That's all I'm trying to get at. And this is the picture of how the Bible describes the human heart. Not our physical hearts, but our spiritual hearts the full essence of one's inward spiritual life. Sin causes these hearts to be hard, impenetrable, and seemingly unchangeable. Our passage for this evening comes on the heels of a case study which explores some of the hardest hearts in human history. The book of Acts picks up where Luke's gospel ends. Jesus has lived, died, and risen from the grave, and now he's appeared to his disciples with the aim of preparing them for Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. After the Holy Spirit had been poured out with thousands of Jews from all the regions surrounding Jerusalem, as well as many Gentiles, gathered together in one place, the Apostle Peter stands up and delivers the first ever Christian sermon in Acts 2. Now, in this crowd are included those who had been eyewitnesses to Jesus's life and ministry. They saw him give sight to the blind. They saw him lift up the lame to walk again. They saw him uh, walk on the water and calm the storms of the sea. They even saw on one occasion him uh, raise people from the dead. They saw him turn a few loaves and fish into food for a multitude. And yet, even after witnessing all of these things that clearly identify Jesus as God's Messiah, one who is truly God, who is able to perform these wonderful things, what do these people do in response? Well, Acts 2, to 23, 
uh, tells us that they took God's sinless Messiah and they nailed him to a Roman cross. I hope you're starting to see a picture of just how hardened these hearts were. And these are the people listening to Peter skillfully exposit a selection of Old Testament scriptures which prove that Jesus of Nazareth, the one that they did crucify, was truly God's Messiah. And this Jesus has now risen from the dead and has been exalted at the right hand of God where he has poured out his spirit. But can these stones, the stones of these men and women's hearts, be broken? Read with me Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Upon hearing, Peter preached the gospel. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Those hearts which had crucified the Lord of glory, the King of Israel, the Messiah of God's own choosing, were finally penetrated. Stone cold hearts had been replaced with hearts of flesh, just as God had foretold in Ezekiel 36. I believe from this passage, we are meant to marvel at God's power in breaking these hearts of stone. The only thing that can break a heart of stone like this is the spirit-empowered hearing of the gospel. Simply hearing that Jesus is indeed the Messiah who came to save his people from their sins and who has risen from the dead, ascended to the Father, and now pours out his spirit so that many of us in this room are recipients of that gift that cutting of the heart that we could respond in salvation. When the gospel is preached and the spirit of God gives utterance to it, all who hear it and receive it will be broken down and will ask the very same question, what shall I do? Every Southern Baptist preacher wishes they could produce an altar call like happened here at Pentecost. We learn later in the passage that 3,000 people were saved upon this hearing of the gospel. This is a unique event in redemptive history where God saw fit to open the eyes of the blind, to break many hearts, and to bring efficacy to the gospel so that many would believe and trust in him as the church is built up. And as you notice, the passive voice of the verb there, cut, indicates that God is the one who powerfully breaks down every human ground of confidence so that they are irresistibly called to beg God for his mercy. If it doesn't pop clearly out from the passage, uh, you'll see that it is evident that it is God who is irresistibly breaking their hearts, calling to them, uh, cutting their hearts so that they respond in faith. Maybe a, a, a mental picture will help you with this. So heaven forbid you are stabbed in the heart with a knife. If you were to take a Band-Aid and put that Band-Aid over your heart, would you be deluded or would that be wise? You'd clearly be deluded. What are you going to do? You're going to rush as fast as you can to the nearest emergency room and you're going to find a surgeon who can open it up and sew it back together to stop the bleeding. This picture makes just common sense to us, right? A conscience that is wounded by the word of God will despair of all other medicines and remedies save God's mercy. It will no longer look to self-righteousness to heal itself or to worldly comforts or pleasures to drown out or medicate the pain. If you're listening here and you're not a Christian, 
whether by choice or by ignorance or maybe you believe yourself to be a Christian, I hope you're starting to see that all people are born with these hearts of stone. Evidence of our sin is all around us. We see it. And the only way for your heart of stone to be broken and for you to receive Christ, to receive life, to receive a a heart that can be mended is to humble yourself before the gospel. You know, there's two other instances in the book of Acts where the preaching of the gospel happens and Luke narrates when they heard this, the same phrase we see here in Acts 2.37. In Acts 5, Peter is before some Jewish leaders. He presses the gospel upon them. He calls them sinners and he calls them to repentance. And it says when they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill him. In Acts 7, when Stephen is standing and preaching, he is explaining how the Old Testament scriptures validate the fact that Jesus is indeed the Messiah that was promised, and he calls them sinners for not receiving him. And it says, when they heard this, they were enraged. You can see the clear juxtaposition between what's happening in Acts 2 and what's happening in Acts 5 and Acts 7. And I want you to know that if you're here, and if upon hearing the gospel, there are only two responses. Either you will be cut to the heart, and you'll know exactly what that feeling is, because you'll despair of yourself. You'll know that I don't possess any righteousness of my own that can merit me before God. You'll know that to stand before God in judgment means that wrath is going to come upon you. You'll know that in your conscience. And so you'll despair of yourself. You'll cast yourself down at the feet of the only one that can save you. Your eyes will finally see that the Jesus that you've read about in the scriptures is God's Messiah. That he truly lived as a man. That his life was perfect. And that his death on a cross in your place satisfies the punishment that your sins deserve. But not, did he, not only did he stay in the grave, you'll believe and know that from death he rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, vindicating himself, showing that God had accepted his offering, and that there's forgiveness for you. That is the response, or the response is that you'll be enraged. You'll be confronted with your sin, And you'll feel that there's no need for a savior. And that is a terrifying state to be in. If you're listening and you haven't received Jesus as your savior, through the preaching of the gospel you've just heard, he is extending to you an opportunity through the spirit to respond in faith. To have your heart of stone smashed that you can have life and be replaced and regenerated by his Holy Spirit. This is good news that is for you. Don't let another moment go by without responding to the Spirit's changing work. But in our final moments, I I wanna close with, with three applications for us, the predominant crowd here as believers in Christ and how we can apply this verse and strengthen our resolve to marvel in God's power to break the human heart of stone. 
First, marvel at your own salvation. I trust that even as I was preaching the gospel, even as I've reflected in my own heart in preparation for this, that you identify as one who is a recipient of God's mercy. As one who could have been those that rejected God's Messiah. You could have been those who were in Acts 5 or Acts 7. That could be us. But by God's grace, he has opened your eyes. He has seen fit to do an Acts 2 work, to cut you to the heart, to reveal your need to depend upon him for mercy and grace and to draw near and to receive Christ by faith. For most of us in this room, that's your story. Oh my God, never let it grow cold on us. Marvel that God has saved you, that he has seen fit to remove the scales from your eyes, to take your heart of stone and to smash it and give you a heart of flesh. If you were in a near fatal accident and both of your kidneys lost functionality, and some random stranger was willing to donate one of their kidneys to save you, you would never forget that person. And what a, what a small analogy when compared to eternal life. That Jesus has given his life that you may have life everlasting. How could we ever forget? Every day when you wake up, give God gratitude. One practical way to do this is to begin every prayer with a note of gratitude to God for your salvation. You can be praying for a meal. You can be praying with a friend. You can be praying on your own. Open that prayer. Oh God of mercy and grace, thank you for seeing fit to save me. Now, Lord, we receive this gift of food as a gift from your hand because you love us. Amen. Second, to any who struggle with assurance of salvation, take heart. It's not uncommon for those who are believers in Jesus to wrestle with uncertainty about their eternal state at various times. To all who feel the pressure of these doubts like a suffocating room on a hot day, I pray that this passage ushers in fresh air to revive your soul. As we saw again in those passages between Acts 2 and Acts 5, it is not those who are doubtless that receive the Spirit's regenerating work, but those who despair of themselves and ask for mercy. If you have done this, you will never lose your salvation. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That is a certain promise. Non-believers do not wrestle with assurance of salvation. They are like those in Acts 5 and Acts 7 who gnash their teeth and feel enraged. The very fact that you wrestle with these things is evidence that you feel the need to be dependent upon God. Those who are humble and frightened like the 3,000 souls added at Pentecost are the ones who end up being truly repentant. As Cole preached this morning, it is those who follow God's commands and fear him, even in questions of assurance, who evidence a clear and faithful understanding of God's word. Third and finally, persevere in evangelism to non-believers and counsel to hardened believers. Keep preaching the gospel to those who feel far off from God. The preaching of the gospel accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit can melt the hardest heart of stone. Acts 2.37 proves this to you. 
You cannot walk out of here without proof that the person that you think is farthest off from God is unable to be saved. But this verse doesn't just apply to evangelism. It applies to our discipling relationships, and it also applies to our own cold hearts as well. Perhaps you have a family member or friend whose growth in the faith has stalled. They've started to neglect gathering with the church, or they seem increasingly disinterested in spiritual things. You don't know enough to doubt the authenticity of their faith, but you're genuinely concerned about their well-being, and you're discouraged that their progress in the faith is slow. Persevere in ministering to them. The same power that the Spirit exercises in breaking hearts of stone to lead them to salvation is the same power of the Spirit that sustains them and helps them be sanctified and progress in the faith. And that Spirit works in you as you minister God's Word to them. You never know when a word that has been spoken a thousand times will eventually break through on the thousand and first time and they'll hear it. Keep discipling, keep speaking words of truth and care. And maybe you feel a cold heart yourself this evening. Keep exposing yourself to God's word. Keep exposing yourself to God's word. Keep opening up this book of life-giving words. I trust that God will warm your heart and bring about a greater and renewed joy in him in due time. And even if it takes a long time, the very fact that you have to day in and day out beg and depend and plead, God, my heart feels so cold. I don't know what to do. Is exactly what God desires for you. He does not give grace to those who exalt themselves, but to those who humble themselves. My hope and prayer from our brief time together this evening is that you see that God possesses infinite power, and it's power that works in your heart and continues to change hearts even to this day. My fourth and final and bonus application is an application that we all get to do together in this moment as we pray together, as we pray that God would cause us to wonder at his power in our salvation. Join me in applying this word as we pray together. Oh God, it is a unique privilege that you have given us another opportunity like this to hear from you in your word. Oh God, make us beggars who long to taste your word as badly as we need food and water and oxygen that fills our lungs. Make us dependent people. God, remind us by your spirit to ponder the wonder of the power that you have displayed in taking our hearts of stone and giving us hearts of flesh that we could be saved. God, we confess that we cannot produce these things on our own or by any measure of discipline, but it will only be by your grace. So now we ask, Father, the giver of all good gifts, the one who is lavish in dispensing his grace, that you would dispense your grace upon all who are here, that they might know you more, that they might enjoy you, and that they might cherish the gift of salvation that you have given them in your son, Jesus. We pray this all in his name.
Amen.